I'm not a fan of spiders. I'm not a fan. I don't like spiders. They freak me out. I know it's not rational. Like, I know this in my head. I know I'm, I like that that little creepy crawly thing on, you know, on the wall is not actually going to harm me in a physical way. It's very unlikely. Um, and whatever harm it would be is very tiny. Um, and yet, I still have that feeling, right? No, I do. That creepy crawly, it's in the shower, and I'm just like, ugh. get away. (laughs) I used to always call Jason. Sometimes I still do. (laughs) Uh, But now that I have kids, I have to be the person usually to deal with the spiders. (laughs) And so I've kind of gotten to that place of like, okay, I I can use a shoe here. I can ignore it. Either one is a viable option, but I still have this, right? And it's, that's, that's what a phobia is, right? This kind of, it's overblown, extreme fear, that's not really rational, not to a level. It may, be, it may be rooted, you know, people say, well, there was, you know, maybe we have this evolutionarily fear of spiders because there are venomous spiders in the world. Maybe. But in terms of how, why I fear it, uh, I think it's, it's a bit extreme. So that's a phobia. It turns out I'm not the only one with this reaction to spiders. Maybe some people in this room, because arachnophobia is the number one documented phobia in the world. Um, especially popular in the West, uh, and so some studies have suggested maybe around 30% of women and 18% of men experience some form of it. Um, the other top five phobias, in case you were wondering, this is not yet what we're talking about. You can take that one off, yeah. Um, we're getting there. The other top five phobias, ophidiophobia, that's the fear of snakes. Acrophobia, fear of heights. Number three is agoraphobia. This is fear of open spaces or tight spaces. I did not realize that. But basically the idea is like you're somewhere, you're afraid you're going to be somewhere and not be able to escape. And so that could be like out in in a field where no one could hear you if you screamed, or it could be in in an elevator, right? Um, And sinophobia, which is fear of dogs, is number five. Some people have really extreme fear of dogs. Anyway, phobias are like, for most of us, not a debilitating Thing in life. It doesn't like generally Im- impact kind of how we're able to live. Most of us, it's an annoyance, um, but that's kind of it, right? But there are other sources of fear that are more pernicious, right? Fears that are broader, more expansive, harder to pin down to a particular trigger, harder to avoid. I'd argue that these broader fears have more powerful effects on how we interact with the world around us. Psychologists have been reporting a rise in anxiety-related disorders in the last several years. Teenagers are a particular, um, particularly significant cohort. Over the last decade, anxiety has overtaken depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling. And in its annual survey of students, the American College Health Association found in 2016 a significant increase from the last time they had surveyed in 2011. Uh, 62% up from 50% of undergraduates report experiencing overwhelming anxiety in the previous year. And teens aren't the only ones feeling it, right? Chapman University does an annual study on fear Typically, most years, uh, the kind of top few things are, I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough money for something. I'm afraid uh, somebody I love is going to die, something along those lines. This year, the results were a bit different. 
74% of people surveyed said the corruption of government officials is their number one fear. Yeah. They, they, basically, that is the number one fear. People say they're afraid of all these things. American Health Care Act got up there. Pollution, lots of pollution. Oceans, rivers, lakes, drinking water, both of those. Then we get to money for the future. But that's number five this year, which is unique. High medical bills, another world war, global warming, North Korea, more pollution. There's a lot of fear. And those are things like we can't control, right? You can't just like avoid the spider. <laughs> it's real. It affects us. Sometimes I think our media cycles of kind of the constant headlines, the capacity to, on our phones, get updates every minute about kind of the newest item, the newest shooting, the newest piece of abhorrent legislation, whatever it is. Like, it's there to provoke that anxiety. Well, this is our second week of Advent. It's the season of considering the implications of what it means that God comes. That that is what this season is about. That is what Christmas is supposed to be about. That we're preparing in this season for that coming of God into the world in the person of Jesus. And the season is often marked by various themes. I think they're intended to be like gifts that the coming of Jesus brings. And so this Advent, I'm interested in thinking specifically about what it means for this divinity to come now. What it means for these specific gifts to be received here, in the Bay Area, in late 2017, in all of this, right? So I'm calling this series Advent. Coming, because that's what Advent means, coming. Coming into what, exactly? Last week we talked about hope, right? Coming into discouragement. The second week of Advent is generally the, the, the week to consider the gift of peace. I don't know about you, but similar to hope, peace for me is another concept that can feel on a superficial level, like an aspirational sentiment. I immediately think of, like, Miss America candidates, right? And they're asking them, like, what's, you know, what is your dream for the world? And they say, world peace, right? But it's, like, so shallow. It's like, yes, and I would like a pony as well. And, you know, like, okay. What does it actually mean to experience the coming of peace in, in a world that I think actually today is more riddled with fear. What would that mean to actually experience something like that? So that's what we're going to kind of consider today. Peace coming into fear. Well, I think the first question we really need to ask if we want to kind of delve into what is this peace thing supposed to be about is to figure out what it means. What is the Bible? How does the Bible actually frame the concept of peace? Because most of the time, I tend to think of peace as, like, the absence of conflict, right? Like, I, my kids are fighting. I want to experience peace. I want them to stop fighting. I want it to be quiet, right? That's, that's peace. When I think about global peace, I think the same thing, right? I want the fighting to stop so we can all just feel safe and secure and live our lives. But this view of peace as the absence of violence or conflict 
actually is not how the Bible seems to frame what we're talking about. The Bible has a more holistic, positive picture of peace than I think I typically imagine. Okay, so we're gonna, we get a sense of that by actually looking at the words that are used throughout the Bible that we translate into peace, okay? There's two words, so we're going to look at both of them. The first is the Hebrew word, and it's shalom, okay? We're talking about Hebrew. We're talking about shalom. You've heard about that word probably, but I figured, like, who better to know what it really means than a rabbi? So I have this quote from Rabbi David Zaslow. Okay, I'll read it to you. It's up there. You can read along. Contrary to popular opinion, the Hebrew word shalom does not mean peace, at least not in the English sense of the word. It comes from a Hebrew root word that means wholeness. What is wholeness? In the Hebraic way of thinking, wholeness is the joining together of opposites. That's why we say shalom when we greet friends and when we wish them farewell. In the most opposite of situations, coming and going, we use the same word, shalom. There's a hidden connection to all our comings and goings. They are wondrously linked together. When I come from somewhere, I am going to someplace else. When I realize this, I feel wholeness, and that is the source of peace, the knowledge that all my opposing energies are somehow linked and part of a single whole. True peace must have wholeness as its foundation. That's interesting, right? wholeness, holistic well-being. That is what shalom actually means, a sense of blessing that is expansive. That is more than just the absence of violence. I say this benediction to you every week. It comes from numbers, right? This was the blessing that God told Moses, have the priests say this over the people. Yahweh bless you and protect you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Give you peace. It's not saying give you the absence of conflict. I mean, God gave this to Moses in the desert, right? Where before they were going to go conquer a whole bunch of people. (laughs) It's talking about that sense of abundant wholeness and blessing and freedom. As Rabbi Zaslow pointed out, the idea of opposites working together in unity is inherent in this concept of shalom, disjointed parts being joined together. And what's interesting is that the Greek, I think, picks up on this in the word that the early Christians chose to use when they talked about peace in Greek. Because the word they use throughout the New Testament uh, is erene, okay? And it literally means joining or binding together. That's what it means. The word we translate as peace means joining together, the joining of things. What I think is interesting about this is that I tend to think of peace as passive, right? I mean, like, it's not doing something. But here we get the sense that it's actually very active. It's not just a lack of conflict. It's not just a lack of engagement. It's an active concept of bringing things together, right? It's an active piece, not a passive piece. So what was the connection for those in Judah 
who were hoping for something to come in Israel between this concept of shalom and God's coming. Why is this an Advent kind of theme? Why is this an Advent gift? Clearly the heart of it, at least part of it, is connected with the hope that those uh, Jews living in a corrupt society, we talked about it last week, right? Their, their rulers are not for them. Economic inequality is, is out of control. The, the priestly caste is corrupt, along with the political rulers. And yet, there's this hope in a new kind of leader, in God's anointed, in Messiah, to come. And it's articulated in Isaiah 9. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This leader to come will bring this capacity of God, this wise capacity to strategize, and this governance of Shalom. Prince of Peace, Governor leader of shalom, of wholeness, of well-being. A leader not known for their intimidating authority, reinforced through violence, but through their shalom, through wholeness, that they bring that to all they govern. Like some of the other words we were considering that Isaiah was speaking last week, that would have been a disruptive thought. It was not what they were living We're going to look a little more at the text we looked at last week because it goes further than we did. Okay, so this is a couple chapters later, Isaiah's word in Isaiah 11. I'll start with where we were and then we'll go go on. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's root stock. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest on him, a spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom, a spirit that provides the ability to execute plans, a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. We skip ahead a little bit to verse 5. This is where we ended last week, talking about justice will be like a belt around his waist. Integrity will be like a belt around his hips. Remember this idea that he holds his power, right? The place, the seat of power, where he holds that. His weapons, his money is ruled by justice and integrity. And then we go on into this, verse 6. A wolf will reside with a lamb. A leopard will lie down with a young goat. An ox and a young lion will graze together as a small child leads them along. A cow and a bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. A lion, like an ox, will eat straw. A baby will play over the hole of a snake. Over the nest of a serpent, an infant will put his hands, and they will no longer injure or destroy my entire royal mountain. For there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea. These are striking images. I mean, it's weird, right? First of all, it's kind of weird. Like, what's all this stuff with the animals? But here it is. These images of opposites coming together. These images of shalom. Oppositional forces brought from a place of destruction of one another to this, like, picture of harmonious unity, right? The wolf and the lamb, the leopard, the young goat, the ox, the lion, the cow, the bear. What are these kind of pairs? What is the oppositional force? 
It's like predator and prey, right? The dominator, the dominated. And that's something we all know. It's the circle of life, right? It's natural selection, survival of the fittest. There are winners and there are losers. And yet, something about that natural order, it seems like Isaiah is saying it's going to be disrupted by the coming of the anointed one, the the predator and prey dynamic, the oppressor and oppressed dynamic is transformed. The elements are shifting. He talks about these animals who we think of as acting purely on instinct. We're not talking about human beings who have the capacity to reason and say, maybe I need to do a more mature thing here than eat this thing, right? They're acting on instinct, and yet there's this sense that whatever is coming is so powerful that the very instincts are going to be transformed. They are not as powerful as this shalom that the leader is bringing. Those who are most instinctually in opposition can be brought together. And the truth of that seems to have implications for fear. Okay, I think this text is directly addressing the way that the coming of shalom in its fullness makes fear irrelevant. Because we have this weird image about the baby, the toddler, playing over the hole of the snake. Right? What is that about? It's probably not something that most of us who are parents have been very concerned about, our children playing over the holes of snakes. Right? We don't live in a world where that's a real valid concern. We have the capacity to protect our kids from snakes, and right around here, I don't think there are a lot of poisonous snakes. But this wasn't written for us. It wasn't written to us, right? For, for the audience that Isaiah is speaking to, this is a real source of danger. This is a frightening image. It's a very rational fear in a tribal culture where shelter is low-tech, snakes are abundant, often poisonous, The concern that your kid is going to get bitten by a snake is a quite rational fear. It is not a phobia. And the results can be quite tragic. Michael Petre uh, has served two tours in Iraq as a Marine. And after coming back, he told a producer for NPR's This American Life about some of his experiences and how hard they often are to translate for his civilian friends back home, how, how people don't get it. One of the experiences he talks about uh, has to do with scorpions. That when he tells his friends about scorpions back home, it's kind of this weird oddity, like, oh, cool, there are scorpions. That's neat. And they have this, like, silly story about kind of a pet scorpion they had, you know, in his platoon. But that's the mask story for how they all really feel about them. You see, in communities like Fallujah or Ramadi, the military mandated a curfew, so people weren't allowed to drive at night. And it's in a place in the world that's really hot. Iraq is hot. (laughs) Power. You want to give them is, yes, please bring us your kid. Let us help. The actual answer is you're taking your life in your hands. A scorpion bite for an Iraqi family causes an impossible decision and puts Marines in impossible situations. 
Can you imagine? I have never been actively afraid of scorpions or snakes, but I have had the experience of feeling terrified about the life of my child. Probably the most terrifying day of my life. We took Elliot, uh, he was three and a half, into, uh, into the hospital. It started more innocuous than that. He had been vomiting a couple days after Christmas, started getting sick, throwing up, con- like just wouldn't stop, wouldn't keep anything down, high fever, 103. And, you know, but we thought kids get high fevers, kids get stomach bugs. So for about a day or so, we just kind of kept at home, kept watching. But after like a day and a half, he was completely listless. He had, like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't laugh at jokes. He didn't want to watch any shows. Like, he didn't seem like himself, and that was scary. And he wasn't keeping anything down, not even Gatorade. And so we took him to the clinic, thinking H1N1 was a thing then. That was like the big swine flu epidemic. So we thought, maybe that's what this is. Maybe we need to take him to the doctor, take him to the clinic. They say, you know, it's probably just a virus. You're probably right. But it could, be, it could be appendicitis. We can't say for sure. Uh, we think you need to take him to the ER. Honestly, Jason and I were a bit annoyed at that point. We were like, come on, it's probably not appendicitis. You're telling us it's probably not appendicitis. We really want to spend our whole day at the ER. Okay, okay. But you want to care for your kid, and he's clearly ill. And so we took him to the ER. And then things did get scary because the doctor after doctor that saw us kept saying, we can't rule it out, but we can't know for sure. Let's try to give him an ultrasound. His appendix is too tiny to see. They couldn't see it on the ultrasound machine. But they could hear him screaming. I could hear him screaming as they tried to give him an ultrasound, something that I've had before. doesn't hurt, generally. And so the doctors came and said, you know what, we think this is pretty critical. It's almost never happens with children this young, but it can, and so we need to open him up right away. We need to operate. I was 38 weeks pregnant with Junia when this happened. It was a terrible freaking day. Absorbing the information, we need to take your child into surgery immediately. We need you to sign the releases. Oh, here's the anesthesiologist with a three-year-old. I'm like, you're putting my kid under. They're telling me these are all the risks. These are all, when your child awakes, they may not know you. They may not know who you are. They may scream uncontrollably for a day. Like, <laughs> I was terrified. I signed the papers. It was the scariest moment of my life. To me, a terrified mother in an emergency room, to those terrified parents in Iraq, it's as if Isaiah's talking to us. He's saying to them, your baby can put their hand over the nest of the scorpion. She's going to be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen to her. There will be no evil predator of appendicitis lurking around the corner. You don't have to tear yourself apart with impossible decisions because they will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain. This is my promise to you. An era coming of wholeness 
shalom, peace. This is what the people of God were looking toward when the promised anointed one would come. There's one other image I find provocative in this text in Isaiah. This idea that they are led by a small child. What's that about? Despite the fact that it's often read at Christmas time, I don't think that Isaiah was talking about a nativity scene. I believe it's emblematic of the greater picture that this passage is painting of this leader to come and the era of shalom this leader will usher in. It's talking about that reversal of roles, that transformation from predator and prey, oppressor, oppressed, that that's going to be understood even in the way leadership is expressed. Rather than having a warrior king, a king who keeps a false peace by the edge of a sword, we have this image of humility, even weakness. The leader is a young child. The child's vulnerability in this upside-down picture becomes a source of strength. And shalom, the bringing together of opposites, leader and vulnerable, that is an opposite. And yet, now shalom is complete. And that whole idea brings us, of course, to Jesus. Jesus comes in a way 800 years after Isaiah preached these words. Jesus comes in this way that's bereft of any majesty, might, privilege. There is no royal birth announcement thoughtfully photographed and Instagrammed and shared 10,000 times over. That didn't happen. Everything about his coming couldn't have been more humble. A pregnant peasant teenager and her betrothed. A poor couple with a whiff of scandal to them. Jesus coming to a family without secure housing, effectively homeless because there was no room in the inn. The witnesses are this ragtag bunch of shepherds. The throne room where they come to worship. God's anointed is a stall for livestock. And that's just the beginning. I remember the story our friend Jill shared with us, right? A few weeks ago of Jesus teaching his followers about leadership. What did he do? How did he do that? He centered the child, right? Perhaps he actually had Isaiah 11 in mind when he's hearing his followers argue about who's the greatest, right? And he hears this debate and he responds, if you want to be great in my economy, my way of governing, the kingdom of God, you need to become like little children. Truly, I tell you, he says, unless you change and become like children, you will never even enter the kingdom. But whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest. They needed to take on that role of humble leader, not oppressor. Because I believe Jesus understood himself to be the governor of Shalom, the prince of peace. It's true. His ministry caused separation and conflict at times. You think about the experiences he had with his own family. But the way he navigated them and all that he did was never marked by dominance or threat of violence, but by modeling a new way of being that brought wholeness to individuals and wholeness to communities. 
modeling through humility and a call to his followers to accept that same way of self-emptying rather than self-promotion. It came through teaching a new way of resistance that didn't raise the sword and continue the cycle of bloodshed, but pursued conflict transformation through nonviolent means, like turning the other cheek, like walking the extra mile, like praying for those who persecute you. I don't think Jesus coached his followers to do these things because he wanted them to be weak, to cow to fear. No, he knew the only way to build true strength was building equitable, harmonious relationships bringing disparate bodies together, reconciling opposites, bringing the predator and the prey together, to lie down together. As Paul would later make clear, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were ultimately about that shalom. 